Christians make mistakes sometimes, don't they? Yes, they do. And uh, I, I'm not ashamed to say it. I, well, like there's some shame to it. I wish we didn't, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, Christians make mistakes. Uh, even Christians in leadership. I was uh, a seminary student gaining knowledge, gaining wisdom at uh, what is now Gateway Seminary. At the time, it was called Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. And I was really looking forward uh, to preaching class. I, I knew that my preaching needed work. I needed to gain wisdom and knowledge about how to assemble my sermons. I needed to be more direct and more clear. I needed wisdom on how to exposit the scriptures and to communicate them in a meaningful and powerful way to my congregations. And so I was really looking forward to preaching class. Now, unfortunately, when I signed up for my preaching class, I think our seminary made a bit of a mistake. We had uh, a missionary who was really gifted in administration. He did not do a whole lot of preaching in his mission field. He organized church plants. He sent people out to different areas to do evangelism. He was very gifted in administration. But he was back on furlough for six months, and he was hoping to be put to good use by the seminary as he stayed there on the campus for his six-month furlough. And they said, well, we'll have you teach preaching class. And unfortunately, the first day of class, he preached to us, and I realized this is going to be a tough one. This is a man who wasn't particularly gifted in preaching. I felt that when he was handling the scripture, he would drift away from the meaning of the text. He wasn't using really good transitions so that you could stay focused on what he was talking about and walk with him through the message. He didn't know how to land the plane at the end and sum it up and really get you to the point of what the passage was really all about. And, and so it was a struggle for me. And at first I was kind of bitter about it. I felt like I was missing out on some great instruction that I could have gotten from a, maybe a, a pastor who was more seasoned or gifted in communicating the Word of God. But what we're going to learn today is it is possible to learn from the examples of those who you admire. It is also possible to learn great things from the examples of those whom you do not admire. And by the end of that preaching class, I might not have gained a whole lot of technical skill, but I had gained a passion to do it well. I was determined not to be the kind of preacher that left people walking out the door wondering, what did we just talk about? I don't want to preach messages that are vague, that don't stay with the scripture. I want to exposit well. I want to be clear and enunciate properly so that people can understand what I'm saying. I don't want to preach too fast. And I don't want to preach too slow and put people to sleep. So this, this missionary who taught my class might not have had the technical skills to give me to become a very, very efficient preacher, but he did put in my heart, by his example of, of not knowing exactly how to preach, he put in my heart a passion to learn that and to seek that out. And so today as we see Jesus drawing to attention uh, examples for us this morning, we're going to learn from example we should follow and an example that we should learn to avoid. And Luke chapter 20 is where we're beginning, so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up that to that passage of Scripture starting in verse 45. This is what the word of the Lord says. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. 
Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. As we re-engage this text in Luke chapter 20 and 21, it is Wednesday of Holy Week. Jerusalem's a very busy place, and Holy Week's a very busy time. The city is full of Israelites from all over the region. They've gathered together to celebrate the Holy Festival of Passover, which was so critical uh, to the Jewish believer. And for the past three days since his arrival in David's great city, Jesus has been teaching in the courtyards of the temple. He's been fielding questions from his various opponents who are trying to make him stumble and trip him up. And he has proclaimed the truth in his messages to those who would listen. The message is about to take a very meaningful turn, though. In verse 45, after he's addressed the crowds, after he has dealt with his opponents, verse 45 tells us very specifically, then he said to his disciples, the things that he has been teaching have been directed to the crowds at large or at the crowds within the crowds that opposed him, but now we're going to see a very important focus as Jesus begins to give his disciples, the 12 that had followed him, some important instruction. These instructions are spoken within earshot of everyone, so all can hear, but they are specifically applied to those who have committed their lives to following him. His instruction as he turns to focus on his disciples is this. First of all, beware of the proud scribes. The scribes, of course, we've talked about at length, but just as a little recap, to be a scribe was to be a part of a profession. It was a job in Israel. If you were a scribe, you were essentially a theological lawyer. The community of believers, the the Jewish people, didn't separate church and state as we in America do so much. They believed that the Word of God should govern their lives, and they gave it legal status. So it was important for them to have men who were very, very well acquainted with the Word of God, who knew the ins and the outs, the the nuances of God's law, so that they could adjudicate the law amongst the Jews. So these were essentially theological lawyers. And not all lawyers, by the way, are bad. Yesterday we were blessed to have around 30 for our seminar on Living Trust, led by Doug Griffin, who is a a California-based lawyer who wants to use his legal skills to serve the Lord. And so he works for the California Baptist Foundation and gives wisdom and insight into people who want to be good stewards of their resources and also gives wisdom and insight into churches to protect them from legal trouble. And he was quick to point out that many of our nation's founding fathers were Christian lawyers. Uh, Paul noted that some of our great reformers that we're going to be studying in the month of November began by studying law. So not all lawyers are bad. But in the case of the scribes of Israel, too often, specializing in the law led these men to become proud. It made them to become arrogant and stubborn, looking down on those who were not experts in the law of Moses as they were. So gaining a greater knowledge of true God should have humbled them. It should have put them in awe of his power, of his knowledge, of his omniscience, of his omnipresence and omnipotence. But instead, as they saw this law as a vehicle to personal greatness, it increased their pride 
and it poisoned the hearts of the majority of these religious experts. So beware, he says, of these proud scribes. The scripture we read point out a number of specific ways that pride had manifested itself in this group of Israelites. First of all, we're told that they wore long robes and that these long robes were an expression of their superficial faith. See, the common Hebrew person would dress in simple but colorful outfits. The scribes, however, wore long robes that were made of very complicated fabrics. They went all the way to the ground upon which there were four tassels fastened to the ends of that robe. Now, there's nothing wrong with those tassels in and of themselves. In fact, in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, the priests were told to wear robes that had these four tassels or had many tassels around the outside of the robes as a reminder of the laws of God. For some reason, those tassels were symbolic. And they would remember, uh, they would remind a, a, a priest that the law kept them grounded in the truth of God. But the problem was that these scribes, hoping to brag about their holiness, would enlarge the tassels to almost goofy size so that everyone would see the tassels on their robes as they walked down the street and would associate them with the law of Moses. So they weren't using those tassels as they were intended in the Old Testament as a personal reminder to humble themselves. Instead, they were using them as an outward sign of their superior knowledge and understanding of God's word. It sometimes becomes obviously artificial when people put on a pretense. I, I always kind of cringe a little bit when I see somebody who's been sitting in the tanning booth a little too long because they really want you to think that they're always at the beach, that they're an outside active person. And you just look at it and it just doesn't look natural. Right? Or when, when a young guy has a, a little economy car and he puts a gigantic aluminum wing on the back so that people think that his car is fast. Ironically, that wing probably slows the car down and wrecks the gas mileage. But it's this, this gaudy expression of superficiality that Jesus is pointing out in these scribes that they wanted the appearance of holiness, but they did not care about a heart of holiness. They did not care to have the kind of humbled, submissive heart that seeks to glorify the Lord instead of the self. These robes cried out, look at me, I'm holy. I'm really serious about my religion. Except the very act of drawing attention to oneself is like buying space on a billboard on Highway 4 to tell the world how humble you are. It's self-defeating. The scripture tells us that these scribes hungered for the formal greetings that they would receive in the marketplace. These men had a reputation as being important to Israel. And since people knew that the law of Moses was critical to the identity of Israel, these men who knew the law were given reverence and were given honor. In the marketplace, if someone came across one of these men wearing these long robes with the tassels, they, they typically, out of respect, would stand in the presence of these rabbis. And they would... They would address them as such. They would address them as rabbi, teacher, acknowledging that they had authority over the people of Israel because of their knowledge of the law. Almost has, as how some people really love to be called doctor, you know, because they've worked so hard to achieve their position. These men loved to be acknowledged. They loved uh, to be uh, given credit for the work that they had put into their profession. And it made some of them even hungrier for more praise and acclaim. 
These scribes loved the seats of honor in the synagogue and in the times of gathering together for, for holy feasts. The synagogues often has, had raised platforms in the front or special seating along the sides of the synagogue building where those who were considered knowledgeable or able to teach would be given positions of honor. And so these scribes strive to be sat in these good positions of honor so that others would, would credit them and would hail them as, as wonderful examples of knowledge. We saw some of this in chapter 11, didn't we? When Jesus was invited to eat with some Pharisees, some of which no doubt were scribes, and he criticized the way they had set that whole meal up. They had gone there after their time in the synagogue, after worshiping God together. He had gotten a special invitation. He went and he sat with them. But then because Jesus is bold and must tell the truth, he proceeded to criticize the fact that they only invited the people that would, would bring great esteem to them and that they were always seeking the best seats at feasts such as these. The scribes loved to be acknowledged and to be given special honor and kudos. Their position of wisdom and authority also gave them special advantages over the people. Often, these advantages were used to take, uh, take for granted those who were most vulnerable in the society. And so the scripture tells us that these scribes would often use their authority to devour the houses of widows, exploiting those who were so, so vulnerable and had very little protection in society. This either describes a kind of exploitation where a widow's hospitality would be taken for granted. If a, if a scribe was traveling to another city to preach the gospel or to adjudicate some sort of matter that happened out in the countryside, it was kind of common knowledge that every Jewish person should open up their home to that individual and often the, the, the widows were taken advantage of and a, and a scribe would move in and, and stay with a widow and be a burden to them and demand that that widow would feed them and take care of them while they were doing their business in that city. It could also be more extreme than that. Some Historians look back and say that there was a problem with uh, these scribes taking advantage of these widows to such a degree that they would convince them to will their estates, their homes, their valuables to that scribe so that he might use it for the glory of God and then he would turn around and use it instead for his own personal comfort and glory. Exodus 22.22, Deuteronomy 10.18, Malachi 3.5, these are all scriptures that that shared the, the important truth to Israel that widows of all people should be protected, that they should be looked after, that people should not be taken advantage of these women who had no one to advocate for them. God cares for widows, yet these scribes were taking advantage of them. Especially if that older woman had no family to look after her, she had no one to speak up for her in a court of law, and who's going to believe a widow over a lawyer in a court of law. This still goes on today as we see so many, unfortunately, so many preachers on TV that say they are preaching the gospel, but in reality, you can watch the appeals that they make uh, to people to send in money to their ministries. And oftentimes, the people watching these are, are older widows who are now housebound and can't go to church and so they watch TV to hear preaching and these preachers are constantly beckoning them to send in part of their, their funds to support their ministries and it's a very similar error that the scribes were making in the times of Jesus. Prayer had become also just another platform for these scribes to show off their pretentious holiness. Now the word pretentious is important there. Uh, Paul joked a little earlier about not praying too long so he wouldn't get in trouble with the scripture today. 
But the length of the prayer is not really the issue. It's the pretentious nature of the prayer. What does pretentious sound like? It sounds like pretend, okay? And that's what pretentious means, that it, is, it gives, gives the illusion of holiness when the substance actually isn't really there. These men would go on and on and use big, complicated words, theological vocabulary that would make people think that there was great depth to their understanding of the Lord God and His will for the Israelites. And yet, in their hearts, these men did not really care so much about God. As they were praying, they were seeking the appeal of the people that were listening to their prayers. So their prayers were loaded with theological buzzwords, little bits of knowledge, They were just another way for these men to show off to the people of their community. It was a dangerous misuse of a sacred practice. Prayer should be holy to us. It should be sacred. It should be the way that we interact with our God. And yet these men were using this structure in a a way to make themselves look better. Talk about abuse and misuse. I was spending some time with a friend of mine, a young man, um, who was in my very first youth group just the other day, and he's a school teacher. He loves children. He's got a passion for teaching them and for uh, helping them to grow and become more mature. And I asked how his class was going this year, and he says, well, my students are actually a little bit harder this year, but the school year is going better because last year I worked alongside two teachers that really they just drove me crazy. Every day they would just talk about how the only reason they were teachers is because they just wanted summers off. They didn't care about the students. They, they didn't really put time and effort into their lessons. And I could tell that these teachers were just there for the paycheck. They didn't really care for this noble profession of teaching these young people up. And so he was so grateful that he had a, a, he, those teachers were gone this year. He's got new colleagues that he can work alongside, people that really care about raising up young people and pouring into their lives. And I think in many ways you see a parallel there from these, these scribes who were We're doing something that should have been wonderful. They were lifting up prayers to God. That should have been a glorious thing, a blessing to the people. But instead of pointing people to the Lord, instead they were using this as a platform for performing and showing off their own holiness. We learn a couple of things from the example of these proud scribes. We learn that proximity to the truth does not assure a pure heart in an individual. People who struggle with a personal sin that they can't kick or or who have a generally rebellious heart that continues to hinder their walk with the Lord, from time to time they will consider, maybe I'll just go into the ministry. Maybe if I just become a pastor, then it'll take care of all this sin that I've been so struggling with. You know, being close to the things of God doesn't make you automatically care for the things of God. And that would be a grave error to think, well, if I go into ministry and serve God, then that will take care of the sin that I have in my own life that I don't seem to be able to handle the way that God has called me to handle, which is through simple repentance and prayer and accountability and fellowship and worship of the Lord God and surrender. Being around God's word all the time isn't a substitute for not loving God enough to obey him. These men, these scribes, were exposed to God's holy revelation. They had access to the scrolls. They were constantly dealing with the truth. But being around the truth did not make them holy men any more than sitting in your garage all day would make you a Chevy. These men were close to the truth, but there's more to being a follower of Christ than just being around godly things all the time. 
Secondly, we see that knowledge of the truth does not assure a pure heart either. Proximity isn't an assurance of, of a right heart, and neither is knowledge of the truth. You can learn and learn and learn many, many things that pertain to Scripture, and yet never let those truths sink into your heart and soul. The remedy to personal selfishness is not simply to read your Bible more, or to go to church more, or to pray more. These men did all those things, and we should do those things. But the simple practice of a spiritual discipline, the simple seeking of knowledge for the sake of knowledge, does not necessarily make you a godlier person. In fact, the mind of man cannot comprehend the knowledge of God truthfully unless our hearts are surrendered to Him, unless the Holy Spirit is illuminating our lives and making it possible for us to make sense of these things that are so radically different than the way man naturally thinks. One needs a love of the truth and a love for the giver of the truth if that knowledge is going to do them any good. These scribes that Jesus points out have found in the culture of the Jewish faith the framework, some, a system of standards, if you will, by which they might feed their egos and gain prominence. And so Christian disciples, we need to beware. If you've been called by Christ to salvation, you've also been called to know and to serve God. That is what God has called you to. Salvation is not just... Uh, security for us. It is not just a blessing that keeps us out of a hell, but God has saved us for our good and for His glory. And so the way that we respond to that salvation must be to glorify Him and to serve Him with our whole heart. As you learn, as you grow, and as you serve, you may find yourself in a context in which you might be praised for your knowledge of the Word. You might attain a degree of, of authority over others as, as you serve in your church. You might wield influence over other people as you lead a focus group or as you lead prayers or as you are sought for counsel by others who consider you wise. If that is the case, and I pray that that happens in your life, that you grow to the point where others are beginning to seek you out for wisdom and you might serve the Lord God. But if that happens to you, do not allow yourself to grow proud as these scribes have. And do not be blind to the real benefit of your service. God has called you and ordained you for good works. Not so that you can prove to others that you're worthy of praise, but so you can prove to others what a transformation God can bring into the life of a sinner. Ironically, one sat among those 12 listening to these very words. One man having the privilege of seeing Jesus day in and day out for three years. One who had been used by the Lord God to do good things. Just days after this message is preached, Judas Iscariot would reach past the love of Jesus and take hold of a bag of 30 silver pieces, the cost for his betrayal of Jesus. So proximity does not make a person godly. Knowledge itself does not make a person godly. Seek a humble and surrendered heart to the Lord God. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, says, Every faithful minister must be content to be less thought of by his believing hearers in proportion as they grow in knowledge and faith and seek Christ himself more clearly. Do you see what that means? 
JC is saying, listen, if you're a pastor, if you're serving the Lord God, your goal should not be to become more and more important to the people you're ministering to personally, but to equip them to such a degree that they need you less and less as their discipleship causes them to seek the word on their own, as their discipleship causes them to want to seek him in prayer on their own. Pastors should not design congregations. They're all needy and dependent upon the pastor, but instead should empower men and women who love the Lord to seek him, to seek him personally, to love him with their own heart and to desire to be near. And and so in in essence, if I'm doing my job well, I should become less important to you each and every day. And the same goes for all of our elders. The mindset of a minister should be to become less as Christ becomes more and more. John 3.30, John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase. However, this warning about these scribes is not just for pastors, friends. When we come to a right understanding of the priesthood of the believer, the scriptures that inform us that we are not just saved to tag along, but we are saved to serve, we see that every Christian has the capacity to be useful for Jesus Christ with their life and, and with whatever resources God has granted them to be stewards of. These scribes were not priests necessarily, but were men who grew in wisdom and knowledge and yet remained stunted in their love and humility. So don't think that this is just a warning for the 12 disciples or for whoever is going to serve as a pastor. This is a warning for every Christian heart who desires to serve well without being caught in the snare of pride and arrogance. And here in the last line of chapter 20, we get a sense of the gravity of the warning that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. This is not a small thing. Take note, those who familiarize themselves with God's word only to ignore the heart and soul of it will receive the greater condemnation, says verse 47. Hell will not be the same for every soul who dwells there. Jesus is especially stern in his condemnation towards those who have had the advantage of being exposed to his holy revelation, that they have seen his word, they have seen and heard the teachings of the, of the prophets, they have been exposed to the scripture of God, they have had every reason to believe the Messiah, and yet they have rejected. Or yet they have put on the pretense of acceptance and then have gone on to teach a different gospel than the one that is laid foundationally in the Old Testament and is espoused by the apostles. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 15. Just listen to these verses. And what I am doing, I will continue to do, says the Apostle Paul, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. See, there will be a special punishment for those who are teaching falsehood to people in this world under the pretense that they are holy men. So these are, these are really intense words that we need to be aware of. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-2, through two, but false prophets are also among those people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in secret destructive heresies, 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, in many ways as those scribes were exploiting those poor widows. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. False teaching is a serious error. And so is putting on the pretense of being a holy and religious person when in your heart you are not surrendered to the Lord God. We must check our hearts, friends, so that arrogance and pride does not rule our action, so that we don't become content with a form of godliness that has no power behind it. You've seen the dangerous pitfalls of proud religiosity in these scribes. Now see a contrasting image. See an example not to avoid, but an example to emulate. Take note of this humble widow that we see spoken of in the first verses of chapter 21. Having warned his disciples of the dangerous example the scribes were setting, he turns their attention to unassuming woman. This woman who we don't even know her name. She's made her way into one of the offering boxes that were positioned around the temple courtyard. I believe there was 13 or 14 of these boxes around the temple courtyard and people could come in and give their offerings there. And so Jesus looks up from his preaching. He sees her walking towards one of these boxes and he sees her put in her offering. We know very, very little about her. Luke records that she was a poor widow and that her poor state factors into how we should understand her giving to the Lord. This widow's poverty was twofold. First of all, she was poor in wealth. She didn't have the kind of liquid resources that she could use to buy things for herself or to bless the community of God. She had next to nothing. I mean, she's, she's struggling to make ends meet. <clears throat> and it's very clear that this woman is basically destitute. She was also poor, however, in circumstance. Being a widow, the man that she loved, the man who had protected her and provided for her was no longer there. So bad things had happened in her life. She was now alone to fend for herself. We, we would not consider her a fortunate person based on what we are shown in Luke. And few would likely label her as a blessed woman. We don't know the whole story, but just from the outside, that's what we see. Nevertheless, she put in two very small coins. They're called lepta. And these lepta were so insignificant in the Roman economy that if you saw a lepta on the ground, you would probably not think it was worth your energy to bend down and pick it up and put it in your pocket. you just walk right past it. That's how little a lepta was. And this poor woman puts in two lepta, the equivalent of maybe one penny in our currency. Though valued at almost nothing, those tiny copper coins were the only treasure that she had to live on. And we're going to have to assume that Jesus had either established a relationship with this woman, maybe he knew her story because he had interacted with her. Remember, this is the third day that she's in the temple courtyards. Perhaps she had come and heard him speak. Maybe she had talked with him face to face. Or it's possible, and I think more likely, that Jesus, because he is authentically man and authentically God in the flesh, was able to know the heart of this woman. Remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and what we call the triumphal entry, that he had knowledge of this donkey, this cult of a donkey that he sent his men out to get, even though it didn't seem like he had talked to these men and he hadn't been in Jerusalem immediately prior to that. So we believe that that was divine knowledge that God had given to him to minister 
in that situation. And I believe that God had given Jesus divine knowledge to understand the situation of this poor widow who had so little. Jesus doesn't give us much commentary as he points his disciples toward her example. And this has led to a, a pretty wide range of interpretations on what we're supposed to make sense of or how we're supposed to make sense of this, this picture of this woman. What is Jesus really trying to teach us? He doesn't line it out for us here. Should we take this to mean that a, a truly spiritual person is one determined to give their entire salary to the Lord's work? Why not? Is, isn't that what she gave? She gave her all. Perhaps that means we should literally give our all as well. As this rich young ruler was told some chapters earlier that all he needed to do was sell all that he had, give it to the poor, and then come and follow after Jesus. Maybe there's more to that than we thought. Perhaps this widow's example is teaching us that we should literally give everything we have to the Lord's mission. Some have suggested perhaps that's the way we should see this. That doesn't seem very practical to me. And to be honest, it doesn't really match the other teachings that Christ has given us concerning our money, does it? Remember, Jesus advocates for people to take care of their own families. Remember, he confronted the, the Pharisees <clears throat> who in the Mishnah, the oral tradition, had added a little clause that said, if you, have to get, if you have to take care of your mother and your father, they're elderly and they need care, instead of giving money to their care, you could just consider your wealth Corbin. And that was a special word meaning set aside for the Lord's work. And then you wouldn't have to take care of your mom or, or dad anymore. They were on their own. And Jesus criticized them harshly for that. He said, this is wickedness. That's not the kind of way that we follow the law of Moses by making other laws that give us, a, give us an escape route to get around the things we don't want to do. So he implored them to take care of their mothers and their fathers in obedience to the Ten Commands. Don't forget that, that he had told us that we should render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So at least some of what these men in the Roman Empire earned was supposed to go to pay taxes. So it doesn't make sense that he would be saying through this woman's example that everything we have must by necessity be given to the mission of God. Should we interpret this example as an expression that the person who gives the greatest percentage of their wealth is the holiest and should be our example? The, wealth, or the wealthy men in this example also were going to those boxes in the Kimball courtyards and giving their large gifts to the Lord. And yet this widow's gift seemed more significant to Jesus. And he says specifically because it was all that she had. She gave a greater proportion of her, her, what she owned towards God's work. So is that what we should take from this message, that the more percentage you give, the more holy you are? If that's the point of this widow's example, it would seem that righteousness is now a works-based foot race that we're all clamoring to win. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. That flies in the face of salvation by grace, doesn't it? Jesus died for us and gives himself freely to those who will surrender their hearts to him. He doesn't wait to see what percentage of your earnings you give to him. Should we see this example, perhaps, as a negative example? Notice, he doesn't, he doesn't really say that we should do exactly what this woman's doing. So maybe he's bringing her in as a negative example of what these Pharisees, or these scribes, rather, 
have caused the people in Israel to do. Their heavy emphasis on the external things perhaps have bled down, trickled down into the, the, the poor masses and now they feel that they've got to make big shows of generosity to God in order to be considered worthy to the Lord. So some have suggested that perhaps this is a negative example, that we shouldn't look at this woman's uh, deeds as something to be emulated, but instead we should see it as a sorry or sad ex- uh, a, a, a example of what flows out of the leadership of scribes, men who have cold and calloused hearts. If that's the point, then I, I think Jesus would have made it more clear to us. It doesn't seem as though Jesus would make this a negative example and in no way, shape, or form say that it is negative. So I think to, to, her, to understand why Jesus points this woman out, we need to consider its greater contrast to the individuals that he had just been talking about as he preached to his 12. The scribes and their wicked hearts were on full display to these disciples as he warned them, and then he lifts his head and he looks to this woman's example and begins speaking of her. I think in many ways he's trying to show the difference between their hardened hearts and her willing and and surrendered heart. Beware had been the warning that he gave concerning these scribes as he described their pride their self-centeredness. Most of them were well off by virtue of their possessions. These scribes had money. Just as lawyers today usually are fairly wealthy, these scribes were well taken care of in their society. And don't forget that when we talked about those scribes, he had specifically pointed to how they had taken advantage of who? Widows. So I think there's a connection between these two passages that unfortunately because of the, the chapter break, you don't always notice that. We would not be in error to assume there is a thematic connection. And the natural connection, I believe, the most logical connection between these two examples is contrast. It would take a radically different heart than the scribes could claim to possess in order to be willing to give all that you have to contribute to the important work of God. The heart had to be different. Her gifts did exceed theirs. Not in value of money, mind you, because two leptas is almost nothing. I doubt that, that God could have done a whole lot with those two leptas. He didn't need those two leptas. It wasn't the amount that was important. It was not the percentage per se, because we might even argue that her gift wasn't particularly wise, that maybe she gave more than she should have. As a, as a widow who had nothing, maybe she should have used that for food. But what really is on display here is the love that leads to a willingness to give sacrificially to a God who means the world to you. That's what truly stands out in this woman's example. She was willing to give, whether it was the right thing or not, she wanted to give to the Lord. When it comes to God, the scribes are takers. They are happy to see this religious structure and to take as much as they can from it, to use that structure to aggrandize themselves. They see the advantages that can be had in knowing the law and exploiting it, and they take as much glory as they can from the God who deserves it by putting their own holiness on grand display rather than directing people to the infinitely better holiness of the Lord God. So these scribes take from the Lord God without end. They constantly want to know what they can get from him. They're good consumers in that regard. But we have a different example here. When it comes to God, the humble widow is a giver. This poor woman isn't there to strip mine whatever value she can get out of God and use it to her advantage. She is humble in heart. 
Though she has very little, she does not complain or lament. Instead, she desires to take what little she has been given by the Lord and give it back to him in response to the love that he has given to her. Now, there is no one who is simply a giver to the Lord God. We are all taking from him. And if you are saved, it is because he has offered to you a grace you could never afford. So that it is not as simple as I'm making it out to be here. But what I'm trying to, to, to illuminate for us and help us to see is that in response to the amazing grace that God has given to us, we need to learn to understand our wisdom, our influence, our knowledge, our gifts as the sum total of all that God has given to us. And then turn that back to Him in humble praise and adoration. We, ha- we need to have a humbled heart that is willing to serve and to give whatever God requires of us, whether it is great or small. So often today, wisdom is associated with moderation. If you read the works of Aristotle, you might become familiar with something that over time has become labeled the golden mean. Have you heard of that? It's finding that middle ground. Buddhist thinkers would probably identify that really well with their own, uh, their own religious beliefs. This idea that we just need to be balanced. Don't, don't be too extreme on this side. Don't be too extreme on that side. If we're just balanced, we'll be okay. Moderation, the middle road is, is the way to go. And while there is some wisdom in moderation, you'll see examples of it throughout the Proverbs. Friends, there, there are some examples that we need to see of extreme faith. This woman's faith is extreme. She's willing to give whatever it takes to glorify the Lord God. Whatever he, he asks of her, she's willing. And we need to ask ourselves, what kind of faith do I have? Is my faith, do, is it a middle ground faith? Am I just willing to get by? Am I just going to follow the Lord so that I don't make any noise with my secular neighbors, but I, I don't offend my Christian brothers and sisters? I'm just going to walk that middle path? Or am I determined to follow after the Lord with a committed and radical heart, a heart that these scribes lacked. They did not have a full commitment to the Lord God because their standing among their countrymen meant more to them than the truth of Scripture and the glory of their God. We as Christians have got to be willing to see that to follow Christ is to be drastically different in this world. We've got to come to terms to that. We cannot continue to fool ourselves into thinking that we can have one, one foot in the world and one foot in heaven and straddle both universes and be fine in either one. We are of Christ. And being of Christ is going to look radical to the world. It's going to look different. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take a willingness to go without at times so that we can let others go with. It means putting yourself far down the list and putting Christ first. And all the while, remembering that no matter how much we do give, no matter how radical our love becomes towards Christ, Christ has given us more. He is always the greatest of givers. Jesus did not consider it robbery to be considered equal to God. Yet he humbled himself and took on the form of man so that he could come and live the life that we live. And he lived that life perfectly and without flaw. It was a life to be exalted, a life to be celebrated. But that's not why he came. He came so that his life might be nailed to a cross and lifted up into the sky as an example of shame, not because of anything that he had done wrong, because he was willing to take our shame and our sin upon his own shoulders and let them be crucified in him. This is an extreme 
love, friends. And when you know that love, and when you have truly seen the ugliness of your own sin, and you've come to terms with the fact that you have no personal solution for it, there's nothing that you can do to undo it. We cannot rewrite our history. There's not enough penance available to us to counteract the bad that we have done to our Lord God. But when you've come face to face with that sin and, and, and realize that there is only one solution and that solution is in the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then a heart of radical submission begins to make sense, doesn't it? If he would give his everything for me, should I not in turn respond by willing to give my everything for him? May the Lord bless the example of this woman who, though she had so very little, gave all to the cause of Christ. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because that ransom was paid, all who trust in him can stand with him now with a new heart, can walk with him with a spirit that understands and comprehends and desires the things that really matter to the Lord God. Praise be to our Savior. May all the glory go to him for the great things that he will do in us.